Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Well, everyone, welcome back to a very exciting episode of the Storybox podcast. Today, my friends, I'm delighted to welcome Bernard Lane to the Storybox. Bernard is a journalist. He also runs the Gender Clinic News, which is freely available for people if they want to go and sign up there. There's also a paid version, I believe, Bernard. Is that right? That's right. There's a there's a paid option. Yep. So people can go and check out your amazing work over there now. Instead of me gushing about all the incredible things that you are doing and have done in your life, Bernard, what I normally do now is I shift the introduction onto my guests and I ask my guests, would you be able to take it over and explain to me and to my audience who you are and what you actually do? So, Bernard, please take it away. Okay. Well, my name is Bernard Lane. I'm an Australian journalist. And for most of my working life, I was working for newspapers uh, mostly the Australian newspaper based in Sydney, and I wrote about many different subjects there over the years. And then um, following a, a story assignment by my editor, I fell down the rabbit hole of um, transgender activism and then into gender clinics and the medical interventions with kids who feel this distress in their in their body uh, and through a rather you know complicated set of circumstances I I left the Australian and um, by then I had set up my Substack newsletter gender clinic news uh, and so um, that's where all of my writing is now genderclinicnews.com um, but I started writing about the gender medicine issue in the middle of about August, September of 2019 at the Australian newspaper and wrote there on that subject for um, a few years, um, finally leaving the Australian um, mid-2022. So I think it was August, August last year I wound, wound up at the Australian and so here I am. 
Here you are indeed, and welcome so much to the Storybox podcast today. Thanks, Jay. It's a pleasure to have you on. And one of the main reasons as to why I wanted to have you on this show and upon doing a great deal of research myself and reading some of your articles that you've got up there, I'm very much interested in this, I guess you could call it the gender debate at the moment or the gender wars as um, Kathleen Stock is calling them. And it's a rather interesting kind of war because I never thought for my... <laughs> my 26, almost 27 years on this earth that we'd even be here right now talking about something that should be so basic for anyone to understand. But one of the things that I'm actually interested in, Bernard, is when you first encountered the, I guess, the transgender narrative, what was your initial reaction to it? Well, I was aware of it, you know, at the fringe of my consciousness, if you like, I was vaguely aware that um, there was an area where um, the debate was toxic, mm. um, but I hadn't really looked at it until my editor in early 2019 asked me to write about the cancellation of Barry Humphreys, the Australian comedian, and so as people may recall, early 2019, um, Barry Humphreys had made some remarks about um, transgender medicine with children. I think he used the term mutilation. Mm -hmm. um, and in response, uh, a number of comedians uh, and activists put a lot of pressure on the Melbourne Comedy Festival to change the name of the award for, you know, the leading comedian of the year. They were called the Barrys. Uh, and so I must say I thought at the time that Barry Humphrey's language was quite provocative, um, but the reaction to his remarks was dis so disproportionate. Mm. Uh, the... You know, the, the wish to totally remove a uh, reference to someone, uh, you know, we call it can cancellation, don't we? Or, you know, it's in other contexts, context, it's deplatforming. So that sort of um, total demand for con conformity is what struck me early on, was, the you know, the, the way in which trans activists um, try to shut down debate. And and when I say trans activists, most of them are not trans. They're not people who identify as trans. They, um, It's a much larger group. You know, you might think of them also as social justice activists uh, and, and quite a few very politically uh, active people uh, on the centre-left of, um, you know, our political parties um they behave in this way uh and of course they have their counterparts all around the world uh not just in the english speaking countries either and you know the the conduct is very similar it's you know a demand for um total conformity in language um in the opinions that can be expressed and if someone is seen to be sceptical or critical 
then all sorts of pressure is brought to bear, um, often anonymously and behind the scenes, anonymous complaints to employers, um, complaints on social media, you know, complaints to the platforms, uh, trying to get people's accounts suspended, trying to get their accounts demonetized, uh, trying to get people to lose their jobs, lose their livelihood. Um, and the striking thing is that usually, I'm not sure if I've ever seen it, but often there is no intermediate stage where the trans activist tries to engage in good faith conversation about what someone else has said. I mean, you know, some people do, you know, some of the people you could call trans activists do do that, but often it seems to me they go straight for the nuclear option. They don't seem to believe in the possibility of reasoning with someone to arrive at a different point of view. And, it, you know, the fact that they go for uh, suppression and censorship and uh, punitive measures suggests that they don't really have good arguments or they don't really even believe in the possibility of uh, persuasion. Yeah. I mean, I think it's outrageous how they go to try and cancel everybody rather than having a meaningful debate. I mean, if you live in a democratic society, you should be able to have a healthy debate. Share ideas, share viewpoints respectfully and mm -hmm. go back and forth. But for whatever reason, these activists, as it were, want to try and shut down that form of conversation because they deem it to be offensive to them and what they believe in. But you can't go to them, I want to shut down what you are saying because it's offensive to me. So mm. you can do the reverse. And a normal sane society, a healthy society, as I have discovered, you should be able to, you know, live freely of whatever you believe in, right? Mm. You should be able to walk around, I believe in this, I believe in that. But it just seems to be this small little minority group that has the loudest voice at the moment is trying to shut everybody up and the ones that have positions of power to cancel and demonetize all those companies, politicians, they create all those laws surrounding it. It's like they're able to win and you're not. Like it's just, it's crazy to me. It really is. Yes. And I think part of the reason for that behavior is that the ideology, the gender identity ideology is very black and white and divides the world into, on the one hand, the hateful bigots mm. who use the wrong language or who express scepticism about the trans project. Uh, and on the other side um, are the allies, uh, you know, and that, that sort of military political language is interesting. You know, so it's it seems to be not possible to be an independent thinker in this area. You're either an ally or you're a bigot. Yeah, you're a bigot, you're a transphobe, you're a homophobe, yeah. you're everything phobe that they deem you to yeah. be, which I think is just hilarious, mainly because having a phobia of some kind, and I've said this on my show many times, in order for you to be diagnosed 
well, in order to have a phobia, you have to be diagnosed by a psychologist in order to actually say you've got this phobia. There's arachnophobia. There's all these kind of phobias. So these trans activists are coming up with this new phobia that, I mean, who's actually really got it? No one. <laughs> Let's be honest. Because in order for you to have it, you've got to be diagnosed clinically by a psychologist and it's got to fit a certain criteria mm. in, for you to be diagnosed with it. So it's amazing to me how they just label you with all these things and they deem it to be so, which I think just goes to show you their lack of, well, let's say smarts <laughs> or cognitive ability to reason or use any rationale whatsoever. They find it just much easier to throw out a label to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you take it seriously, the charge of transphobia is um, a pathologizing of mm. the person who said the wrong thing. And yet, of course, depathologizing is supposed to be one of the, you know, the, the key aims of the trans rights project. But uh, I think, you know, it's like the term fascist. Uh, I think that most people realise that it's used as a political weapon. It's not really meant to be taken seriously, although some institutions in society have been persuaded to take it seriously. And, you know, there may be people who do genuinely hate um, trans-identified people. Um, I've not met them. It's conceivable they exist. But if you look at the overheated online conversation, you would think that there's a vast number of people motivated by hatred, and I don't believe there is. Mm. I mean, I haven't seen anyone personally that has spouted hate towards these individuals, not to say that they don't exist. I'm sure they do. Mm. But then it just raises the question of, well, could there be a bot somewhere? Like with the technological world that we are living in at the moment, like how do you know they're actually real and they exist somewhere? You know, that raises, that's one of the questions that I have <laughs> at least. And it's amazing to me how you've got all these activists as well that claim, oh, we've, we've received death threats, we've received a bunch of hate things, but you never actually see any of the receipts. I don't know if you found that, Bernard? I haven't thought about that. Um, I, I do think that online culture is something very different from reality. Um, and that's, I think, one of the problems is that there's a disinhibition especially when people are operating from anonymous accounts and they will say things that they would never say to someone face-to-face, -face, or you would hope not. Um, I mean, that's the, apart from the Barry Humphreys story, uh, it was online that I started to notice the behaviour of trans activists. Um, I forget how I came across her, but Kathleen Stock, mm. who is... Um, was at that time a, a philosophy academic at Sussex University and I, I just stumbled across some of the Twitter exchanges involving her and I was struck by just the absolute toxic uh, and, you know, really quite vile attacks on her. And so I naturally thought, well, what has she actually said? And when I looked at 
what she was saying. She was offering arguments and she wasn't abusing anyone. And it's that kind of disproportion that um, is everywhere in this in this topic, this topic area. I don't know if you heard or watched the Dr. Phil episode where a teacher's on there and he's debating trans activists and they're literally like verbally attacking him. And he goes, I don't hate anybody. I don't hate you. I don't hate trans people. He goes, one of the best lines I've heard in a while, those who hate the truth will always see the truth as hateful. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem with all these activists, let's call them, that have attached this belief, the trans ideology belief, onto their identity. And because it's a feeling, because it's a mere belief that they've associated with life, everything that somebody says that goes against what they believe, they're obviously going to hate it. And they're going to use violence. They're going to voice their concerns or they voice their opinion in a really aggressive manner. I don't know if you've noticed that, but a lot of them seem to be rather aggressive. Where on the counterbalance, you've got someone like Kathleen Stock who doesn't get aggressive, who just uses her reason and logic and science to try and have a conversation with these people. But it's, yeah, it's amazing to me how much these people actually hate the truth and try and remove it from the very fabric of existence. Well, you know, I mean, one of the accusations that was hurled at me when I first started writing about gender clinics was that I was driving trans kids to suicide. And, I mean, that's a serious accusation. If it was meant seriously, then those people would have continued raising that concern over time, but they, they don't. They just... They just drop away. If you continue to um, do your reporting in what you see as a standard journalistic way, um, these um, Twitter trolls, you know, some of them journalists themselves uh, who were attacking me in 2019, they mostly just fade away. And I think um, some of the temperature in the area is explained by the fact that once you start to ask questions about whether or not these medical interventions are actually going to help or harm these kids, that becomes um, a big provocation to the activists who have been celebrating these interventions as life-saving and suggesting that this medicalization is part of a progressive project, you know, even the next civil rights campaign. Because it, if, it is, if it is the case that, that these medical interventions are at least sometimes causing harm, then that's a tremendous condemnation of the, you know, the self-righteous narrative of the trans rights activists. Do you believe trans kids, trans kids exist? It depends what you mean by that term. Mm. Uh, obviously, there are kids who identify as trans. They make that claim. 
What that means, I think, is going to vary. I do believe there are kids who can be profoundly distressed about a sense of conflict between um, their their body, their biology, uh, and some inner sense of identity, which you know we call at least the ideology calls it gender identity. So um, I do think that there that condition exists and it can be extremely debilitating and it does call for a compassionate response. Um, and there are some, you know, transsexual adults who are not ideologues but who do say that the medical transition um it made them feel less distressed. Often they don't make a really dramatic positive claim. They're not saying that all their problems were solved, but the idea seems to be that there are some people who are less unhappy, less miserable, less distressed after they have medically transitioned. Transition with children, though, is a much more serious issue and again I do think that there there has been this very small percentage of kids going back some decades um, who suffer that extreme distress I mean the term used to be gender identity disorder uh, that was seen as too pathologizing the term mostly still used these days is gender dysphoria so that's a it's a diagnosis um, in a psychiatric um, manual of diagnoses. Uh, so I think that the focus on the idea of the trans kid is not really very helpful um, because that's essentially an identity politics focus. And I think the focus, well, put it this way, I think the, the identity politics focus distracts from the issue of this very small group of kids who are suffering real distress and the question is, what's the best way to help them? So You'll see, um, you know, posters at trans rights rallies saying protect trans kids. And the implication is that the way to protect trans kids is to make sure there are no obstacles to these medical interventions, that, that kids who identify as trans can get rapid access to puberty blockers to cross-sex hormones and in some cases surgery when they're still minors. Um, but if, if the slogan is protect vulnerable kids with gender dysphoria, then 
there has to be a much more open debate. Um, what are the pros and cons of puberty blockers? What are the pros and cons of social transition whereby adults go along with a kid living out an opposite-sex role? What are the pros and cons of cross-sex hormones, of surgery? What's the evidence like? That Those are the issues I think that we need to focus on. Um, and so... I don't talk too much about trans kids. I talk about, you know, uh, minors who identify as trans or minors uh, or young people who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Um, I'm not saying that the identity politics is totally irrelevant. I, I can understand why people have pursued this as an identity politics project. It's just that I think that... Um, there has to be a, a properly focused um, debate involving evidence about helping that very small minority of kids who have gender dysphoria. I mean, it's and it's become more complicated because while while if you go back some decades, um, the kids with this problem overwhelmingly boys and the problem typically emerged um, when they were very young, you know, like preschool age. And when those kids in multiple studies were tracked and followed up over, you know, a number of years, um, the result was that the vast majority of them, as they grew up, through puberty, they grew out of their gender dysphoria. And many of the, the kids who did grow out of it emerged as um, young, gay, uh, lesbian, bisexual adults in healthy, non-medicalised bodies. And the problem we have today is that Roughly around the period 2010 to 2015, the patients um, turning up with gender issues are a very different group. They're not the early onset males. They are adolescent onset um, females. And it's unclear how many of them even fulfil the diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria. Uh, so that that's a very complicated issue. And, um, again, I, I think we need to put the identity politics to one side to some extent and look at these um, adolescent onset kids, mostly girls, and look at them in a comprehensive way, um, focusing not just on the gender issue that they've presented but on, you know, their other issues because in many cases these teenagers have um, a series of mental health or autism issues. Uh, in some cases the mental health issues and autism predated 
the gender issue. So the question is what what's really driving the problem and therefore what is the best response, what's the best therapy or intervention. Um, and I think we just don't get a clear enough focus on these questions in in the debate because the debate is so caught up with um, a sort of a culture war and identity politics uh, and abuse and people using different language, you know, which they're not able to mutually translate. Now, have you heard of um, BID, Body Integrity Disorder? No. So essentially that is the case where somebody doesn't believe that a limb or part of their body belongs to their body. Yes. And I found it interesting how these young people especially don't believe that their gender or their biological sex belongs to them. They feel like they were born in the wrong sex. They've mm. changed it now to say gender and they've included the identity politics surrounding that. And in a world of we're not allowed to discriminate, we're not allowed to be unkind, we've got to be affirming, got to accept them, a lot of it comes down to a mental health disorder that you can't officially diagnose now because with BID, you can actually diagnose it because that is a legitimate psychological condition. On the outset, you've got someone that doesn't feel comfortable in their own body and they feel like they were born in the wrong body, but we're not allowed to diagnose them anymore with this gender dysphoria. Now it's like you're trans. And for the ones that have actual gender dysphoria, they get like this really, really quick diagnosis, even though it could have, it could be autism, it, it might not be actually legitimate gender dysphoria. So we're getting these rather, because there's so many cases now, there's too many. <laughs> and mm. all these uh, psychologists and therapists, they're told, you've just got to affirm. If the child says so, it must be so. I mean, like if a child wants to get a tattoo, does that mean that it's allowed? I mean, like, why are we doing these things to kids, especially? Like, why in your research and in your study have you noticed why a lot of these kids are getting caught up with this ideology so much? Well, it's um, there are various theories. Um, the feminist view of it is often that... Um, Teenage girls are getting exposed to um, quite extreme pornography, mm. um, you know, sometimes as young as 11 or 12, in which um, women are brutalised. And according to this theory, these girls are opting out of becoming um, adult sexual female beings. Um there's another view that that some of these male teenagers are opting out of out of becoming men because in society they see so much talk about toxic masculinity uh, and they don't see 
uh, inspiring male role models. Um, then there's the effect of social media because this sort of troubling flip in the age and sex profile of gender clinic patients, that this happened around the time that the first generation of teenagers um, who grew up entirely on social media starting to emerge. And I think that um, there's an element of being disembodied. Now, I mean, this is just speculative, but um, if, you, if you're a kid today, you can spend so much of your time on screens uh, and less and less time face-to-face -face with other humans or um, using your body, playing sport, whatever it is, getting out into nature. Instead, you're, you're there on a screen where you can use uh, all sorts of filters, you can change your appearance, you can change your name, you can change your avatar. Um, and so all of that might be giving young people the idea that they can change their sex. I don't know, you know, and I, I think it's probably going to be a number of different things that are that are causing this. Um, but the trouble is, you know, the because the situation is so politicised, it's difficult to do the research that is necessary. So you may have heard of um, this concept of rapid onset gender dysphoria. Yep. So this, this was a hypothesis suggested by an American researcher, Lisa Littman, uh, and she based her research on parent groups. And she was very upfront about the fact that she was looking at mostly at groups where parents were worried by their teenagers um, appearing to suddenly declare this gender, gender distress with no childhood history of confusion about, about their sex. Uh, and so Littman's study, it just simply said, um, this is a preliminary study. She wasn't offering this as a diagnosis. She was simply saying, this is a hypothesis. And, you know, the preliminary research with parents suggested that there should be more research. But the reaction to it was absolutely toxic. And there's, there's been an ongoing attempt to um, shut down any discussion of this possibility. But, but really, we need more research in this area, not less. I mean, there was a, a recent paper that was published um, which shed some more light on this, you know, this possible explanation for what's going on, and that was... Um, subject to all sorts of pressure, and the journal crumbled and retracted the paper. Just extraordinary. Um, and the objections were clearly bad faith objections, suppo supposed ethical concerns. Um, but in reality, when you look at it closely, uh, you know, those 
concerns could be applied to so much other research that no one is troubled by because the results of this other research um, reinforce the trans narrative as opposed to suggest a conclusion that could be a problem for the trans narrative. But, you know, to come back to your question, you know, what, what is driving um, this incredible explosion in the numbers of young people declaring a trans or a non-binary identity and wanting to medical medicalize their bodies. Um, you know, I think you, you have to look at all sorts of different causes. Um, the, the availability of this new medical model is probably part of it. You know, if you, you create this possibility of putting puberty on hold, which mm -hmm. is a relatively new thing for anyone to suggest. And, you know, because cross-sex hormones have been around for a while, but this use of hormone suppression to stop a naturally timed puberty really only goes back to late 1990s, early 2000s, and that's, that's recent. Uh, and I guess, you know, as many people have pointed out, that puberty can be a difficult time, especially for girls. Uh, with the start of menstruation, um, and if their puberty starts early and they mature earlier than other girls, they will come in for a lot, a lot of unwanted male attention. So it becomes very tempting, this possibility of hitting the pause button on puberty, and, and it was promoted in that way as if it's, you know, a simple pause button you know, with no risks, totally reversible, we were told. Uh, and as we've, as, you know, the years have passed and there's more and more puberty blocking going on, you know, it's become clear that this is not a simple intervention. Its reversibility is questionable. It, on the data that we have, it looks like this is uh, putting kids on a one-way path of lifelong medicalization uh, and they start they're starting as young as 10 uh, on puberty blockers and in the available studies the vast majority of kids who start on puberty blockers will go on to cross-sex hormones and the cross-sex hormones are supposed to be taken for life so it, it really doesn't look like a um, low stakes no regrets reversible option because you can't stop puberty like you know well it, it's interesting to me i mean you know that when you see discussions about this i'm told that um the science of puberty is still not not very well understood you know how it's initiated and it seems to be clear that you know, in animal studies, that if you suppress the natural sex hormones, um, that seems to have some effects uh, on cognition. And but but in the human sphere, this seems to be an unknown. You know whether or not there's a sort of a crucial window of development during which you have to be exposed to the natural sex hormones. And if you're not, 
you may miss out on some crucial cognitive, psychological identity development. Uh, and initially when puberty blockers were being heavily promoted, you know, around, say, I suppose um, the period from around, you know, 2010 through to about 2018, 2019, that's, I think that's roughly the period when the promotion of puberty blockers was very superficial. And then around 2019, 2020, um, there started to be exp you know, expressed more doubt and more concern about them. So, for example, Britain's National Health Service, which had a web page on, on gender treatment and used to claim that uh, puberty blocks were fully reversible. In, in 2020, without any announcement, they did a stealth edit on that page and introduced much more uncertainty, including uncertainty in relation to the effects of puberty blocking on psychological development. Um, so it, it's it's certainly a a big it's a profound intervention. You know that's the impression I get from listening to scientists and clinicians who um, appear to me to be more thoughtful about it, and they make the point that it is a um, it's a very, very serious intervention uh, and the full effects of it are unknown. Uh, and it certainly seems um, unwise to assume that it's going to be reversible. What we do know is if a child doesn't go through puberty, if they've blocked it or stopped it from occurring, we know that during the stages of puberty, having released the proper chemical hormones that your body naturally produces for that particular sex, they are able to grow and develop, which is a healthy and natural process. Sure, for some women and even some men, it may be a horrible time because, you know, you grow, get acne, you get all kinds of things. It's just a, you're developing. You're going from a, a young boy or a young girl into a young man or a young woman. And that period of time, you need to have the unleashing of your body's natural adult chemicals in order for your gonads to grow, to drop. Mm. If you don't allow that process to go on, what we do know is that if someone does stop their puberty, if they're a male biologically, then the, like they're they don't, their testicles don't drop, their penis doesn't grow, nothing. They've still got the, the biological structure of a boy, even though they've got the age of, say, uh, an adult or a teenager, or they're supposed to have, that is. That's why they've got to go on, well, we've got to have these interventions of, of hormones as well, like testosterone, estrogen, all these other chemicals, but they're synthetic. They're making it worse. And for a man, they're not even supposed to have a huge amount of estrogen in their system. They're meant to have the primary of testosterone, which is created in the testes. And if they, if they haven't had those testicles drop or develop or grow, 
I mean, this should be, or this should be science, but a lot of people go, no, if someone believes that they're born in the wrong body, then the best thing to do is, you know what? We're going to chemically castrate them. They're never able to receive any sexual pleasure, no uh, arousal whatsoever, no ejaculation whatsoever. The female eggs, they don't drop because they haven't been through menstruation, none of it. And we've got these people that are going, this is what the child wants. This is what the child has consented to because they have told us that they believe they're born in the wrong sex. So we're yeah. going to put them on these, these blockers and these cross-sex hormones. It's butchery. It's mutilation. But they've created this lovely, fancy little narrative saying that it's reversible. And I actually did a video on that very thing in how some journals and medical places that talk about gender care and all that sort of stuff, they have changed the wording silently. They won't tell you when you and you do a comparison, it's all changed. And it's just amazing to me. Like they won't admit it. They won't. No. Well, it's what's going to happen with these kids is very hard to say. There's, mm. there's so many unknowns, though it, it does seem clear that, you know, the current advice from those promoting gender transition is to start um, kids on puberty blockers quite early in puberty. So if, if they do, if a kid is started on puberty blockers early in puberty and then as is suggested by the existing data, they go on to cross-sex hormones, then it seems that um, infertility, sterilisation, is the result. Mm. And um, with males, it's it seems that they may never be capable of sexual orgasm. The effect of, of this on females, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure... If, I don't see it discussed much, but let's say you have a female started <clears throat> on puberty blockers early in puberty, goes on to cross-sex hormones. What What is the um, capacity for sexual intimacy like, like, you know, for that person? I don't know. It doesn't seem to be discussed much, but um, yes, it's... It's very, it's a very troubling area. It's just, uh, and you may have seen that um, there was an activist, I think, in the US who suggested that all children should be put on puberty blockers mm. until uh, it became clear which kids were trans. Uh, and in that sort of similar vein of thinking, uh, the, the term the wrong puberty is being used. Yeah. And the other sort of rhetorical trick is that um, when activists hear warnings about irreversible medical interventions, they will refer to the wrong puberty as irreversible, as if it's an optional uh, intervention. So puberty becomes a kind of a, a disease or an illness, at least in some cases, that has to be treated. Which is a sad thing when you really think about it. 
like the the amount that the language is changing and the amount of people that are just going along with it and saying, oh, you must be right. Mm-hmm. You must be totally right that people are going through the wrong puberty. I mean, nobody goes through the wrong puberty. You go through the right puberty. Mm-hmm. It's founded in even at conception. That's when everything is formed in your DNA and your genetic code for you to be either a male or a female. And for some cases, you've got intersex people, which is still male or female, believe it or not. Just everyone's going, it's all about this identity construct that they've created. And we're going to remove biology. You can't talk about that. You can't talk about what we're doing to kids with the puberty suppression. Can't talk about kids, what we're doing to them with the cross-sex hormones or God forbid the surgery intervention. You can't talk about any of that because that is apparently harmful and hateful to the person and you and, and that child is going to be at risk now of them trying to commit suicide because of what you've said, even though it is the truth, even though it is scientific, and even though you've got evidence and data to back up everything that you're saying, this is harmful and damaging to a kid. No, apparently you're the bad person because that's all that information is going to be harmful to that kid. So now you're somehow liable, which I think is just absurd. But you're you're totally right in in the fact that we don't know too much about what happens with with women or with young girls because it's not really discussed or looked too much into. But we're making eunuchs out of young boys and we're sterilizing the next generation is what we're doing mm. and no one really those that do bat an eyelid to it and then they warn they're silenced but what are we doing honestly yeah i think a big part of the problem is um that the media has failed to um, properly investigate, scrutinise and report in this area. And the failure has been partly um, passive, as in simply not reporting issues such as the risk to fertility, the risk to sexual function, uh, and the other aspect of the failure has been um, active in the sense of um, journalists behaving like trans activist allies and pumping out superficial, emotive, identity politics um, stories about these medical interventions and not asking the normal questions that you would ask if you're reporting on other medical interventions. You know, what's the evidence? What what are the risks? Where's the data? Why wouldn't you classify yourself as being sort of like this ally? I mean, you are a journalist. You've worked in the media sector for a long time. Why wouldn't you classify yourself as being an ally to the transgender people? Well, um <clears throat> I think it's partly generational. You know, I'm Gen X, and I think that younger journalists uh, have emerged, you know, from their university education, 
mm. with um, indoctrination. Well, I guess you could call it that. I mean, it's it's just that ideas that seem um, unlikely to me, or ideas that seem ideological to them, are just part of the sort of the factual background that they take for granted. Um, I, I think probably another reason is the, the left-right political divide. Uh, and it just so happens that identity politics of this kind is supposed to be left-wing, supposed to be progressive. And um, my background um I mean, going, it goes right back to my university days, really, when when I um, fell out of love with what was considered to be left wing, um, a left wing way of looking at the world. And um, so it's probably not surprising that I ended up working for the Australian newspaper, which, you know, its ideological nature, you'd say, is centre right. And it's just easier for a journalist on a centre right newspaper to um, write critically about a subject that is deemed to be left-wing. <laughs> so, I mean, in a, in a sense, I, you, know, you know, people, ABC journalists have my sympathy because let's say you've got an ABC journalist who really wants to do a thorough, proper investigative job on gender clinics. Well, that ABC journalist is going to face a whole lot of hurdles, which mm. I didn't face at the Australian. Um, so that's that's part of it. Um, yeah, I mean, but I should say that a lot of the the best informed critics of gender medicine are on the left. Really? And yeah, yeah, and. Um, Leftist feminists are, you know, a very significant group among the critics, you know, informed critics of gender medicine. Uh, and there are some figures on the right who declare themselves to be, you know, critics or sceptics of gender medicine, but who really don't seem to know very much about it at all. It cuts both ways, you know, I mean, um, there's, there's exceptions on both sides. Um, but I found this experience going, going through this very strange area which, which is not quite medicine, not quite politics. It, um, it has made me, I think, um, less ideologically consistent, you know, so, uh, I'm not. I'm not troubled so much these days by wanting to have some overall political philosophy, because I see how political philosophy, you know, and this urge for people to attack the right enemies and defend the right allies that that whole mentality has has made it much more difficult. To, to look clearly at what gender medicine is 
and to ask the right questions. You know, I mean, ideally, you know, ideally you would take gender medicine out of the political category entirely. And, and I think this is one of the, one of the problems because um, people who, for whatever reason, have got to know something about what's happening in gender clinics, they'll often turn to each other in consternation and say, well, why can't other people see it? Why can't people see that this is something that really needs to be thoroughly investigated? There needs to be an inquiry. And the answer is that because of political philosophies, a lot of people can't see it as yeah. it is. So they see uplifting, inspiring stories of stunning and brave trans children and the heroic doctors who are helping these kids to be the trans kids they always were. And, you know, and that's a progressive story. It's, you know, um, we had gay liberation in the 80s and this is the next thing. Yeah. And so when you think of it that way, you don't descend into the detail with, you know, an open mind and you manage to not notice that, these kids are being sterilised. You manage not to notice that probably a good number of them, if they were left alone, would emerge as healthy um, gay, lesbian, mm. bisexual young adults. Um, and we've got this extraordinary situation. I mean, I mean that that. Uh, that likelihood is it's still speculative because um, what was happening with those little boys mostly, um, that may be a very different condition to what we're seeing now. You know, the, the early onset males versus the adolescent onset females, they don't necessarily have the same um, outcomes. And this is a point made by... Um, Dr. Ken Zucker, who is a is probably the the leading or one of the leading international experts on youth gender dysphoria, so he draws this distinction between the kids who are seen for the first time early on and the kids who are seen for the first time at um, adolescence, and he thinks that the latter group, the adolescent onset people. Um, are less likely to grow out of it. And I guess that shouldn't be too surprising because, you know, they're, they're seen for the first time when they're adolescents. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to think this through myself, but, you know, mm. in some cases they will be seen for the first time with their, their adolescence, um, presumably, I mean, the question is, I guess, whether or not the gender stress goes back uh, back in time but it just wasn't seen at the time or whether or not the gender distress is this thing that's come out of the blue and might be rapid onset gender dysphoria, assuming that that ever becomes a diagnosis. I know Zucker was cancelled by a lot of people for doing that particular study and going back to your point about people that are like it's kind of a mixed bag, I've noticed, because you've got some people on 
the left that would be considered to be progressive, let's say, they're actually very much against this gender ideology. Mm. I've spoken with first wave and even second wave feminists that are very much against this because of the whole issues that surrounding uh, female rights and same-sex spaces and all that sort of stuff. So that you've got these uh, trans women going into female-only spaces, which amazes me how they've got to, in order to classify themselves as being a woman, they've got to put trans in front of it. Like I've always laughed at that and, and gone, well, why have you got to put trans in front of it if you're claiming to be a real woman? Shouldn't you just have woman? It's like they say, I hate this term, cis. You're mm. a cis man or a cis woman. It just gives me the, I get, yeah, anyway. Mm. It frustrates me using that terminology, but they'll use it why? Like, just call people for what they really are, man, woman. But it goes down to the whole, I get it, gender identity narrative once again. But then you've got the third wave feminists that are all in favor primarily of the gender narrative because they deem it to be rather progressive and you've got to be affirming, you've got to empower every single people and you've got these ones that go, if they claim to be a trans woman, they are real women. Those um, third wave feminists because they're really angry people. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed that, but a lot of them are really, really angry with the world and themselves. And uh, it's sad. It really is sad to see that. And then you've got some, I've noticed some people on the right that say we need to be kinder, that we need to be a bit more lenient to these people. That we 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 shouldn't talk about it. We'll just let it, let them be, let them go and do their own thing. And I'm like, hang on a minute, no. See, I used to have that kind of philosophy uh, a couple of years ago. I didn't speak up about it. I started noticing it. I was a bit, I don't know too much about this, so I can't really talk about it too much. I let it go. I'm like, other people will speak up for me. And then it got to the point of absolute insanity, Bernard, that I was like, no. I know what's right and I know what's wrong. This ain't right. It's taking over society, our culture as we know it, for the sake of women, for the sake of kids. I'm going to do the right thing and speak up about it. It was after a conversation that I had with Helen Joyce, who wrote Trans When Ideology Meets Reality. She helped me really understand this a bit more. I started listening to Jordan Peterson a little bit more, started listening to people that were in the know about this entire issue. And maybe I'm going on a little bit of a, a rant here, but just sort of my little backstory for you. Yep. But then I just was like, I need to start saying things. And hopefully my voice will be captured in such a way that people will be able to resonate with a young person that is talking about it. Doesn't matter whether or not he's conservative or not. It should just come down to common sense, like should come down to science. This is what we know to be biology. Biology is real. It's fact. Stop going away from it. Let's let's try and I don't even think you can have a debate anymore about it. But anyway, let's just try and find this um, this way to end all this madness before it gets incredibly worse. That's my thought on the whole thing. 
I don't know if there was a question there. <laughs> Sorry about that. I went on a bit of a, a little yeah. bit of a rant. It's true that um, there are some people on the right who um, have helped push the gender ideology narrative. Um, I think it was Theresa May in the UK who mm. um, had promised something that looked like self-ID gender, you know, whereby you could change gender without a medical diagnosis, uh, be a simple speech act. Uh, and I've noticed in Australia that some of the moderate liberals um, seem to be quite uncritical and unreflective about what's going on. And I've wondered about that and I thought, um, could it be because um, conservatives are always being abused and smeared and uh, the moderate liberals, I mean, what sets them apart is that they are considered to be more tolerant, more more kind, more um, open-minded. but I guess it's easy to mistake that sort of open-mindedness for being uncritical uh, and basking in the sort of reflected glow of being a trans ally. But I do get the impression, you know, this is based on listening to parliamentary debates, I do get the impression that um, these moderate liberals haven't really looked at the issue in any kind of detail. I mean, that also goes for all of the, not all, but um, many of the Labor uh, and Greens people who have been, uh, you know, giving speeches when um, the state parliaments were passing laws against so-called conversion therapy or when the parliaments were passing laws to enable self-declared gender identity. And and I I listened to many hours of um, speeches in the Queensland, the ACT, and the Victorian parliaments, and it seemed clear to me that many of the Labor people standing up there and the Greens and others uh, supporting these these bills really had very little understanding of the issues, and. Um, the media is partly to blame for that because if the ABC had been an honest broker in this area, um, <clears throat> the, the outlook would, would have changed profoundly, I think. You probably wouldn't have been able to get those bills through Parliament. I think the whole conversion therapy bill radically changed everything because now therapists aren't, aren't allowed to do their job properly. And now you've given the ones that would be considered more progressive and liberal and going down this ideological pathway, you're giving them free reign to affirm a child that says and comes to them, hey, I I feel like I'm not in the right body. And the therapist will just go, oh, sure, by all means. It's like, no, you're a child don't fully understand this. You probably won't fully understand it until 
your frontal lobe develops at the age of 25, 26, and even then it's debatable, but, okay, society says 18, that is the age where you're able to consent to this stuff. But as kids, they go to a therapist, therapist goes to them, all right, the logical solution here is you believe you are a a trans kid. I believe you. Must be so. So I'm going to put you on these cross-sex hormones and we're going to recommend you to a um, uh, an endocrinologist. And they'll give you all the things that you actually need. And it's just one person in after the next. It's like becomes this chain cycle. And it goes back to the the so-called rapid onset gender dysphoria. I mean, how do you even quantify that or even consider that to be even a diagnosis of sorts? Rapid, like the fact that it's so quick and it's happening to so many other kids all at once, as it would seem. It's like when a friend goes, I've got gender dysphoria, I think I'm trans, then the other person goes, I think I'm trans too. I think I've got gender dysphoria too. It's like social contagion, as it were. I guess so, but I guess you could take the view that um, it's still gender dysphoria. It's, it may still involve um, real distress. It's just a question of uh, the pathway that takes you there. So the pathway involves, you know, peer and online influence, um, but the distress is still real and requires some response. Um, yeah, it's it's unclear. How are you feeling about your work currently? Have you faced a great deal of backlash with your writings? Most <clears throat> I did initially in 2019 um, but then as I say I mean if you I just kept on reporting because you know anyone who looked at the material could see that it wasn't inflammatory it wasn't um, you know it was relatively straight reporting um, and yet uh, if it was really so harmful and damaging why did the, you know, the various online trolls and others go, you know, mostly go away? They haven't completely gone. They, you know, they sort of pop up every every now and then, but um, they don't. They rarely have anything of substance to say. Um, I had a um, a large, you know, a, a, as in a, a complaint for the press council, which involved many articles. And that was partially upheld. Um, and I think the press council remains a problem. I think it's it's um, it's difficult to do normal journalism in this area, and it's difficult to do normal journalism even at a centre right newspaper like the Australian. And part of the problem is that, um, especially back then. It's difficult for editors to work out what is reasonable in reporting because the stuff that I was doing was, it looks completely different 
from the reporting that was being done on gender clinics in the Age newspaper in Melbourne or, or the ABC. So if you're an editor and there's one particular journalist who is an outlier, it makes you nervous and some, that's understandable. Um, the press council, I think, probably with good intentions, drew up a, um, a reporting guideline for, um, you know, it was LGBTQ, et cetera, but the key element of it was to do with trans reporting. Uh, and when I found out about that guideline in 2019, it struck me that that was going to make it more difficult for normal journalistic scrutiny of gender clinics, and that turned out to be the case. Um But I see now there's a bit more reporting. You know, there's there's a couple of people on my old newspaper who um, are, are following the gender clinic story, which is great. Uh, the Daily Mail uh, does some reporting on it. Um, the Daily Telegraph does as well. So it's not such a lonely task. Mm. You know, there's better reporting in the US too. There's uh, the Spectator spiked, I think. I've noticed Unheard. Yeah. Um, Kathleen Stock. There's Douglas Murray. I love his reporting on things. Very intelligent man, Douglas. Mm. Even though he claims, even though he's a gay man, he doesn't associate himself with the LGBT, whatever, Rainbow Alphabet Mafia mob. It's a very intellectual human, I think. The way he comes about certain topics, I've really, really appreciated his dialogue on many issues. And the one thing we agree, we disagree with, surprisingly, is on um, atheism and religion. Surprisingly, that's pretty much it. <laughs> and possibly um, homosexuality, but that's about it, really. But there's other people that, I've enjoyed Jordan Peterson, um, Helen Joyce. There's uh, I've even spoken to a couple of transsexuals. There's um, Buck Angel. There's um, the offensive tranny, Marcus Dibb. There's quite a few in this space that they're all against this ideological madness. And they've gone what used to be considered as well, we can we can just live our lives the way we want to live it in the shadows. We're not seeking attention whatsoever. They've gone, it has changed too much where all these activists are seeking attention so much and it's just ruined transgenderism as we know it or ruined what it was it used to be, essentially, um, which I think is is really sad. Final question for you, Bernard. What are your thoughts on the whole pronoun rubbish? <laughs> uh, like I'm not fussed at a personal level to using someone's, um, the name they would wish me to use. Um, it, I mean, it hasn't happened yet that, that someone's asked me to use pronouns and I, it puzzles me a bit because, you know, they're third-person pronouns. Um, it's not a huge deal for me uh, if it's decided at an interpersonal level where it might just be a matter of 
courtesy. Um, I certainly don't agree with the power of the state being used to mandate this. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not too fussed about the issue really. To me, the really important issue is the medicalisation of vulnerable kids. Yeah. I'm with you on that. How can we support you further? Oh, well, you know, it's it's great if people subscribe to my newsletter. Um, I've I decided at the outset that I would put all of the articles outside the paywall because I want them to be freely available so that people can share them. Um, that's it, really, I suppose. Subscribe and share the articles that if you think they're worth sharing. Where can they follow you? Is it just Gender uh, Clinics? They just search for my name, Bernard Lane, uh, Gender Clinic News. It will come up. It's um, The URL is genderclinicnews, one word, dot com. I'll make sure that it's in the show notes and I'll share it. I'm sure my audience, considering they're very well-versed on this subject themselves, I'm sure they'll find you and uh, hopefully they can support your your amazing work. But thank you so much for your time, Bernard. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. So appreciate you joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thanks for having me, Jay. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.